This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. the hour of nine o'clock. You are on three triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhall. And I'm Angeline Charles. And I've got you on the wrong microphone. Try Have you? How's that? That's, I'm Angeline um, Charles. Yeah, there you go. Oh, perfect. Thank you. We've worked it all out. <laughs> Professionals here, of course. Yeah, it's, it's on the run. And, and look, Tim, uh, yeah, speaking of real professionals, <laughs> what can you say about Lord Timothy of the Thorpe? Oh, magnificent. Just, it, it, it rises at a level that is just above all levels. Yeah. So is this a dip now? No, but <laughs> <laughs> I try not to draw that kind of, you know, we don't want to draw that listeners into that, but, you know, you, where do you go from Tim? I know. You know so just, it's, it just, they're, big, oh. they're big shoes to fill. They are they're enormous shoes. They're, shoe, they're, they're beyond shoes. What's beyond shoes? I don't know. It's a post-shoe era with Tim. <laughs> <laughs> we love him. We love, we love Tim Thorpe. So anyway, you're on Radio Marinara. It's a bit wild and woolly out there, it eh? It is, isn't it? <laughs> I came across the town and I was kind of going, oh, it's really grey. Yeah, very grey. On our side of town, it was almost black. Was oh, like, really? Yep. Yeah, wow, because we went from kind of nice, uh, nice-ish, oh, morning-ish into grey. Yep, yep. It was like that old Visage song. From yes. the 80s, you know, we fake. Oh, sorry, I've forgotten the 80s for a second. <laughs> <laughs> my um, my 11-year-old hates me when I go, I go, my 12-year-old, he's almost 13, but I play that song sometimes just to annoy him. <laughs> we fade to grey. Yeah, no, it's, um, it really is bad and it's windy too. It's windy? It's like properly windy. And, yeah, like pretty bitterly cold and I think there's <laughs> going to be almost sideways rain shortly <laughs> on looks of things. In the car, Scarlett was going through her phone, her um, iPod app, going, oh, Dad, there's a 100% chance of rain this <laughs> afternoon. I went, oh, I think that's a certainty. And then it, and then it goes all night. <laughs> so yeah, we're not in for a good day. it's going to be incredible. However, you are in for a good morning on Radio Marinara because we have got all kinds of interesting stuff. We're going to have a chat to uh, Barramundi Farmer. 
Yeah, when I, when you say that, it sounds like you know, but this guy's got a PhD. Like barramundi farmers these days are a little bit, you know, kind of advanced in their technologies. So where does he have a barramundi farm? Uh, I'm going to find that out. Okay. I'm pretty sure Northern Territory, but he yep. works a bit in in, uh, in Queensland. But uh, Dr. Michael Salini, he's going to join us talking about barramundi. Really, really interesting. I, I found out facts about barramundi I didn't know. Anyway, you got a bunch of news. I got a bit of news. That's correct. Yep. Not going to tease us. Oh, look, you know, one of them I got out of... Um, I wasn't planning on talking about this story, but I saw this in the in the age yesterday. Mm. It's about uh, a gentleman who uh, made seaweed diaries from the 1800s. Oh. It's a really terrific, beautiful story. Oh, and, wow. Uh, okay, cool. So I thought I wanted to cover that because they're trying to find out who he is. So I want to help that good cause. Oh, nice. And uh, Captain Windshift is going to blow in. Like he's like probably actually riding some gale force wind. <laughs> you know, with some small skiff because he could. It's not for the faint-hearted on the bay today. In <laughs> fact, I think you could responsibly say don't go. Don't go in the water. <laughs> is that right. a good segue to, to the weather, Angeline? Look, it is a good segue to the oh, weather. Oh, we are good. We segue and, uh, well, don't and, we? And in the tradition of Bron, I'll have to get this newspaper out despite the fact that I let, would never do this in let my me own just life. make sure that we can hear that. Yep. Crinkle it around oh, a there bit. There it is. That's the newspaper. <laughs> so, uh... A low of 15 to a top of 19. <laughs> so that's only going to change four degrees in I the day. Winds it. around 35 kilometres per hour, uh, 95. Sorry, kilometres per hour? Yeah, they do kilometres per hour. That's a lot of, that's a lot of is, knots, isn't it's, it? It's like 25 knots. Yeah, look, yeah, that's, that's not overly strong, but, I mean, it's still windy. Uh, uh, 95% chance of rain. <laughs> so it's down 5% it's from down. this morning. Yeah. <laughs> 20 to 50 mil, though. Oh. Yep. Well, that's real rain. That's real rain, so it's going to bucket down. Can I just, sorry, I hate, I'm sorry, Dr Beach hates this when I do this too and plays Bron, but just going to interrupt the weather for a second. Did you see the other day, you know, in the floods up north, which have been terrible did, and devastating yes. yep. post the cyclone, they had, I was listening to a forecast and they said they had 1,000 mils of rain in two hours oh in one goodness. bit kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of upstream of Rockhampton. That and is I was like, a lot of rain. Th- that's actually a metre. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, yep. 20 to how many? Well, 20 to 50 here, so half as much as what they've got. No. Yeah, serious. Not half as much. 2 to 5% as much. Oh, sorry. Yeah, by mass there. I haven't, so I've only three quarters of the way yeah, through that yeah, coffee, yeah, so coffee. brain hasn't switched on. <laughs> and then it'll get uh, not much better tomorrow, 17. Oh, really? Tuesday, 20. Oh. Wednesday, 23. Oh. Thursday, 23. Oh. Friday, 21. And Saturday, 19. But really... It is. We are sliding towards winter, aren't we? We are. We're probably actually blowing violently towards it. Pro- quite possibly today, <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> anyway, it's a day to go and see a movie, stay inside. Now, we had a... Um, I saw a movie last night. What did you see? Perfect Strangers. It's Italian. Have you seen it? It's I haven't. It's just no. magnificent. You got, I won't talk too much about it, but it's a dinner party. So, I'm just going a little bit of kind of the general. It's a dinner party. And um, friends come over for dinner party, and then along the conversation, it just yeah, the, your phone becomes kind of like a, a thing and contains your life, and it's a black box recorder kind of thing of your life. So they kind of go, everyone's got secrets, and so there's a couple, and so they go, let's put our phones on the table, and whatever happens, whatever appears on this phone, we share. <laughs> That's oh hilarious. my god! <laughs> How wrong can it go? <laughs> I'll have to watch it. It is so good, and it's so very good. It's not at the Nova at the moment, around the place. Anyway, a um. We had a a, a, a Facebook from a listener the other day saying, 
are there any volunteer groups around the bay because I'm interested in getting in volunteering and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? We're going to put a little lead on our Facebook page to say, to help this listener. And there's probably others thinking, oh, I'd like to kind of get into a bit of volunteering, yeah. but I don't know where to start. So we'll get a little kind of, if you've got one or you know of one or you know of one that you've worked with or your cousin that you know, knows or whatever, just post it on our Facebook page. That's a great and idea. Yeah, because it was a really interesting question. I was thinking, oh, I could think of about a dozen. I'd start with the Port Phillip Eco Centre and, you know, and you, and you think, oh, gosh, there's so many. There are, although I think it's really important to know what sort of volunteering you want to do. Do. True. Because <clears throat> if you want that hands-on, I want to get my hands dirty, you need to find one that's like that or, you know, something more office-based. Yeah, uh, true, Changing true. The, the, uh, the ethanol in the museum collection, you know, there's all different types of experiences. True, good point. So I'm going to post this in a, in a, in a break on that, you know, during the show. <laughs> Excellent. You know, and and if, anyway, so there was just a listener's request. So we won't name them because they're probably, you know, there's probably a bunch of people who have the same question. Yeah. What's your guy? You've been looking around for interesting newsy bits. I have, and I and I'm, I I stumbled across this one in the paper yesterday. I'm going to give you the the copy oh, of the paper. Oh, so I've got one online here. Oh, the, the National papers, the Museum paper. in Canberra here, paper, yeah. is looking to find <laughs> out more information about this <gasps> album of exquisite seaweed oh. specimens that have been collected in the late 19th century. Um, and they, they think they know who collected them. His name's Charles Morrison. He's an amateur Scottish seaweed collector and he uh, arrived in Melbourne Damn. from Ireland in 1854. Wow. And I know that this is uh, not a visual medium here, but um, these, these are, are gorgeous. absolutely these are exquisite. They're amazing. So they're pressings. He's basically pressings. pressed all these algae. Yes, with these beautiful poems in them and decorations and these ornate uh, albums. Uh, he's collected about 200 specimens in this one album that they have um, from Ireland, the Cape of Good Hopes, obviously on the journey over yeah, here, right. and, uh, and from the Port Phillip area around Melbourne. And then, and then moved to Tassie. And no, no, moved to Melbourne. He moved and to Melbourne. He, wow. um, so his specimens first date from 1851 and the Australian or the Port Phillip Bay ones are from 1859 to 1882. Goodness me. Yeah. It's it's the most amazing I thing. I would love to know if there's things in there now that aren't. Exactly. What a window on the yeah. world that from the 1800s, which would have been when he arrived in Melbourne, it was not long after settlement. So the Port Phillip Bay presumably was still quite pristine or as it was before yeah. Europeans came along and started to impact on it. Uh, and to see the difference in the, the the collection and to know perhaps, and this is probably part of why they want to know a little bit more about so Charles. So they, they know it's him but they just don't know much about him. That's right. And, yeah, wow. and where he collected them from, I yeah. suppose. Um, so they just know that he was born in Scotland in 1817 and came out here. He's got six children and they lived as, in as Collingwood and Fitzroy, did as they? you do. Wow. Which is what why I felt like I wanted to say this on air because <laughs> presumably some of his yeah, descendants yeah. Yeah. still live around here. Um, and then he died in uh, 1911 in oh, Essendon. Oh, wow. So hey, he almost hit 100. He must have been. Wow. So if you know anything about him, uh, mm. the museum would like to hear from you. So the you. Australian Museum or the, the Museum Aus Victoria? Or the, the National Museum of Australia, which is in Canberra. That's the Canberra one. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will put a link on their web on our web page yeah, on our cool. Facebook page, um, and they're just wanting to know more about him. But they, they all also are having the the album on display. Someone's ringing. Could be his well, great, hopefully. His great grands, um, they're going to have the anyway. album on display at the museum from the eighth to the twenty fifth oh, of nice. April. This if, museum in Melbourne uh, at their Landmarks Gallery in Canberra. If yeah, you nice. happen to be going up there or you want to make a journey but these are just absolutely beautiful albums and, and, and so he, he he's day do we know what his day job was 
we don't because no. he wouldn't have been no, you know at, like this would yep. have been his like weekend and after after hours passion that's right so six kids a day job and then happen to produce yeah. these beautiful poetic albums it's 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 beautiful they're like floral arrangements they're just yeah, wow. incredible Gorgeous. with poetry and uh, the creator was saying she thought this was actually a la- a woman who had made this album oh, just going by gender bias gender bias no but just Jesus. she was looking at the the detail and the you know the <laughs> The drawings and no, the poetry. Digging, uh, no, this is what she <laughs> yeah, sounded just, know, you know, know, her bias. But yeah, then yeah, she yeah. discovered it was actually a gentleman that, that had made so them. Cool. And that really surprised her. I thought that was, you know, it's a really beautiful thing. So yeah. we'll, we'll put that on, oh, on yeah. our web page, yeah. on our Facebook page, sorry. Yeah. And uh, if you do know anyone, ask around. It'd be great to hear more about this story. To Morrison. Yes, wouldn't his name's be, Charles Morrison. Wouldn't it be interesting if... Is it James, the jazz musician? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if they were on. Anyway, that's just a complete <laughs> left field thing. Um, sensational. Terrific story. Do I've got another one here. Yeah. Did you know that you could breathalyse killer whales? Imagine if that was your job. Well, <laughs> that would have to oh, be George Costanza's I'm a marine biologist. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm a, I'm a killer whale breathalyzer. So the thing is what I didn't know was, was that killer whales had a problem with drink driving. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like I, I, you know, Sorry. I keep any, you know, I'm not surprised you can breathalyze them, but why would you need to? I've always oh. found them to be very responsible drivers. <laughs> they quite possibly are. <laughs> but scientists in British Columbia, in Canada, um, going out and breathalyzing, so to speak, killer whales. <laughs> to... <laughs> How do they do this? You're not going to get it to blow in a straw. Well, no, it's, it doesn't sound as crazy as it looks. Okay. They get a they get a big petri dish with some agar on it, right. and put it on a, a long pole, presumably a very long pole, yeah. and put it over their blowhole. So when they breathe out, <gasps> it captures the uh, like stuff the, that comes out the spray, which would have uh, microbes and things in it that they oh, want to look at and study. Me. Goodness me. Isn't that fantastic? What a great project. And so what, then they take away this, like, basically killer whale snot yes. on Elgar and, okay. they gr- agar and they grow it up. They do. And they, like, count the snot bacteria. And and the types of snot bacteria. Yeah, To wow. know uh, what is the baseline of, of wild killer whales. Oh, and this is... This is quite a distinct population that they're it's looking at. It's not, is it? It is. This is a, this is a population that. Um, no, I mean of snot. Like, I mean the, the things living in there. Are oh, they the distinct? things that living in there are fascinating. They've goodness got uh, a staph, the and salmonella, and they oh, also had a, a fungi called foma, which usually is found in soil. So they're goodness trying me. to see whether these. Um, microbes that they've, the, the killer whales have in their breath have been from terrestrial yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. origins or whether they're also present in the marine environment uh, and and what would they normally carry? Are they are they carrying things that they shouldn't be carrying or Goodness is this me. just general so that they can, I guess, have a baseline of understanding yeah, yeah. The, um, the killer whales better? And the population you were saying is a particularly... Um, it's a particularly small population yeah, right. of British Columbia and... This was, um, they had many thousands previously, but in the 1960s, this is where uh, the live capture fishery focused on. And they took about um, 50 whales away, which uh, went into displays at those theme parks. And the population suffered quite heavily through that. Presumably there were other factors because that was only 50 out of a thousand. So, But um, they they are slowly recovering, but wanting to know more about them and how to to aid their recovery. Imagine advertising that job. It's great, isn't it? That's why I said it's, it's got to be better it's than fantastic. George Costanza's. I know, yeah. it's excellent. <laughs> uh, what would you call it? <laughs> I don't know. 
killer whale snot collector. Oh, I like the breathalyzer. Yeah, you know, it that's, is. That's just quite. And of course, easy. you know what? You know what? Stupidly, I was thinking immediately. This is just to show it's a bit of a slow morning. I was thinking, how do you get the cone over their nose? <laughs> but of course, forgetting that it comes out the top of their. I'm head. sorry, but you didn't breathe long enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Fantastic. I did see experiments when I worked in um, Santa Cruz. There were there were do- dolphins who were rescued, not rescued, but but they'd they'd retired from the navy, and they were being used to to understand dolphin physiology. And they used to have to train them to wear a little kind of cap over their blowhole that they'd strap around them. They went off into and collected, you know, what they were doing, and they were basically interested in the metabolites that were coming in and out as they were breathing, um, you know, through their highs. They were getting, doing more exercise and. Uh, Etc. So yeah, so they, there's no train. Yeah. yeah, it was like a little kind of cone that you know, and oh, went okay. off to it. When I had a little tube that went off and analysed what was coming out. I imagine dolphins are just much easier to handle than a killer whale. Yes, you would think so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, hey, you got anything else? No, that's it. Look, that's oh, it for me. Goodness me, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Angelina and I have been wandering through a wonderful bunch of news this morning and we're kind of interested in exploring a bit further the, the, the beautiful and humble Barramundi. And so uh, live on the line from just north of Brisbane this morning is uh, a Barramundi expert, Dr Michael Cellini, who joined us to talk about that beautiful and noble fish. Good morning, Michael, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning. Thanks very much for the time this morning. Um, so, like, I, I think the barramundi is is one of those fish that everybody kind of sees in the shops and has a kind of a, a love of, you know, especially down here in Victoria, we love the barra. Um, and I reckon most people don't know anything about them. And I've got to fess up that I learned a couple of things the other day that I did not know about barramundi. So I thought we'll get to know the fish a bit better. So let's start with its life cycle. I was surprised to learn barramundi are the reverse of salmon. How do they do that? Yeah, that that's right, yeah. That, so it's a, a really unique and, and, as you said, a very iconic fish in Australia. Uh, a lot of people are quite aware of the um, the fish, but perhaps not so much about its, you know, its, um, its life cycle. And so I'm not an expert on life cycles per se, but it is unique in that it, um, it, this fish is able to live in fresh and marine environments, so it's urihaline. Um, in, in terms of its actual life cycle, though, um, quite the reverse situation from the salmon, so that the barramundi will live most of its life uh, up in the freshwater reaches of the rivers and then migrate down towards the brackish water or the estuary parts to spawn. And uh, so that, that, that's a quite a reverse scenario to what you, you might be more familiar with in the salmon. You know, they're leaping up the rivers in order to spawn before they... Uh, eventually don't make it back. So, yeah, quite an interesting fish in that And respect. so, and so uh, I, I'm not, I know that you, I'm not an expert in barramundi livestock. I mean, you, you've, you work in the, um, the barramundi aquaculture industry, work for, for Ridley Aquafeed, and you kind of got an expert on what they eat and, and all those kinds of things. But I'm just interested to know, like, what, do, do we know where they go? Do they go in any, you know, do they head out to the reef? Do they, you know, do they, do they hang around in the seagrass and the inshore or...? Yeah, look, it's my understanding that they, they tend to hang around in the estuarine areas, probably closer to shore. Um, I think the, you know, the, um, the recreational fishers will probably attest to that to some extent. So they, they, they can, as far as I'm aware, they can migrate further out to sea, but it's probably a bit less common. And, um, yeah, they, they spawn in the shallower estuarine areas and then um, the juveniles, they swim back up to the rivers and, um, and they live out their lives in sort of a, 
in some respects, sort of a sedentary lifestyle. They they hide under branches and 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 um, debris that they can sort of take shelter in in the rivers, and, and they don't move around a great deal once they're sort of established up a river. Yeah, right. And so, does that create an interesting? I I know that most actually. Let me step back a bit. In, in terms of what we see in a shop, do you have any sense of how much of that is wild caught and how much of that has grown now, you know, in aquaculture these days? Oh, look, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, the barramundi industry in Australia produces anywhere between four and 5,000 tonnes of barramundi per year. And a lot of that's consumed on the domestic market, whether it be through um, restaurants or, or retailers of some description. The, the stuff that you tend to see in the in the biggest supermarkets is often um, imported barramundi. Oh! But the the actual wild catch barramundi from Australia, it's uh, as far as I'm aware, it's a fairly you know premium product, and uh, yeah, I think you probably find it more often than not in the north of Australia. I, I can't speak too much for the southern states, but um, put it so, this way: in Brisbane, it's very very unusual to find um, wild barramundi in the in the supermarkets. So I, I'm surprised to learn. I didn't realise that barramundi, we imported barramundi to Australia. Where do we get it from when we import it? Uh, well, some of the Asian countries are quite um, good at producing barramundi now. The same species, they call it Asian sea bass. Ah. But, um, it's, it's exactly the same fish and they, they have pretty efficient culture systems over in some of the Southeast Asian countries. So, so the wild extent of, of the barramundi, is the wild extent of the barramundi right through kind of, you know, the, the tropical kind of Australia to Asia zone where we would normally find the wild fish? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's basically what they call the Indo-Pacific region. So huh. it extends from anywhere north of about, I think, Rockhampton and up to, or oh, testing my geography here, <laughs> let's say Southeast Asia just to be safe. But yeah, it's a, it's a fairly widespread geographical area. That's interesting to know because I must admit I, I just thought most of the stuff we'd eat here would be, would be coming from either probably Australian farms. But, hey, so anyway, back to this life cycle thing. So the fact that it kind of does the reverse of salmon, it's an adult up in the, the freshwater and it's a, a, a juvenile, you know, spawns, it goes down, spawns, you know, in the ocean or in the estuaries and then, you know, the little ones travel back up. Does that create an issue when you're aquaculturing them? Do you have to kind of mimic that? You know, do they, do they you know, do you have to kind of fake it and kind of imagine that they go, you know, out to the ocean or into the estuary to, to spawn, or is it all just kind of done by some, you know, <laughs> not known vitro fertilisation <laughs> these days? No, well, the, the guys that um, spawn the barramundi, they, they try to mimic to some extent the, um, the natural conditions, and that helps the barramundi come into condition so that the females... By the way, we didn't mention earlier, but these, these fish are hermaphrodites as well, so they're, ah, they're, yes. born as a, they're all born as males, and uh, at a certain point in their life cycle, once they reach a certain size, they, they undergo a, a transformation, they become female. And so the, the farmers, they tend to take advantage of that. And in fact, they take advantage of lots of different aspects of this fish in that um, they, can, they can spawn them quite reliably in captivity now. And I've been doing so for many years. But as part of, say, for instance, a treatment program, that, that they can um, grow the fish in seawater if they've got access to it, if they're near the coast, and then they can give them a freshwater bath to kind of clean off any parasites or anything that might be, you know, building up on the fish through the culture system. So the, the guys in the hatcheries and the, um, the production systems, they really take advantage of the flexibility of this fish. I, I love the idea. So, so is there a trigger in the wild that we know of that, that um, switches the sexes? of them uh, you know like is it because you know the dominant female has disappeared and so they, they turn into you know, is there some kind of trigger 
Uh, it was just it, an age thing. I think the jury might still be out a little bit on that, but uh, my understanding is I think it's actually related to size. Once the fish reaches a certain size, um, it'll just trigger that sex change, this hormonal change. And um, I think that size is up around the five to seven kilogram mark. It's probably depending on the seasons a little bit too, but um, once they reach that certain size, then they transform into females and... Um, and then they, they can go on for the rest of their lives growing into rather large fish, all as females. And, and from a kind of a, a farming perspective, as I understand it, they're a particularly hardy fish. I mean, you've talked about their flexibility now. You've kind of got the ability to deal with both fresh and salt, when you've got the ability to change sex. Um, they, they, they're pretty hardy fish too, I think, in terms of, you know, kind of just being able to deal with stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, and... Um, I mean, I wouldn't draw um, comparisons so much in the sense to, say, the salmon, because they obviously, they culture a lot of salmon in Australia too, down the southern states. But uh, in terms of their flexibility and their hardiness, yeah, they're pretty pretty tough fish. Uh, but it doesn't mean they can be, you know, get lazy. The farmers can't get lazy because these guys are susceptible to disease and, and parasites and bacterial infections, just like any other fish living in close confines. So, you know, they are pretty hardy in terms of their... Um, tolerance to fresh and salt water and low oxygen levels, that kind of thing, but they still have to be very careful when they're farming them. Yeah, no, I bet. Now, the, the, what do they eat in the wild? Well, in the wild, it's reasonably well known that barramundi are kind of omnivorous to an extent. Like, they, they pick up all sorts of stuff and they'll eat it. Um, right. Okay, so anything. They'll pick up anything from bloody crabs to small fish to bits and pieces of rubbish or whatever it is they can find. They're, they're pretty select, they're pretty um, indiscriminate in some cases. And but so then when you're culturing yeah. them... Sorry, no, no, you go. No, no, you're right, you're right. I was thinking, but then when you're culturing them, does that make it easier because you can kind of... You can give them a, a broad-based food that, that feeds them or does it make it harder? Um Actually, culturing fish of any species is presenting challenges towards their nutrition, and, and a lot of research has gone on um, underpinning that for many years now. And the the problem is, I mean, well, it's not really a problem, but it's something you have to be very aware of, is that in a cultured environment, the fish only get fed one, one morsel of food. They don't have a varied diet. Yeah, right. And so we have to be very careful when we formulate a feed for any fish, but, you know, it's no different for barramundi, very, very careful as to the nutritional composition of that feed because it has to cover all the food groups, essentially, <laughs> you know, drawing analogies. It has to, has to cover all the... tick all the right boxes. And so one of the things I'm interested in, and, and then I want to talk about the, the, the incredible dangers from um, holding them, but I'll, I'll come back to that one. Um, um, one of the things I'm interested in is one of the things we hear about um, some aquaculture species is um, particularly ones that are aquacultured in the ocean is the impact they have on the direct environment around them that aren't part of the farm. Is, do, do culturing barramundi have a similar kind of impact to say some of the things you hear about salmon down south? Um, yeah, it does. And, and there's no avoiding that when you're culturing fish or anything in, in, that, in that regard. <clears throat> but um, the, the guys who farm these fish up north and, and for that matter actually down south, there's, there's some farms even in Victoria that's oh, okay. down um, they have to be very, very careful about their discharges and, and the environmental protection guys, they monitor that very closely and there's caps on how much production they can actually um, achieve based on their nutrient outputs. So if the levels of ammonia or nitrogen or phosphorus 
whatever it is. If it's going up, then they, they put caps on their production uh, levels. They, they can't exceed that because they're not allowed to discharge too much waste. That's right, yeah. So now moving on to the dangers from Barramundi, um, I, I was surprised to learn, and again, this was, this was my, major, my second major thing I learned, was that you can actually get a nasty injury from a Barramundi <laughs> Um, and you've had personal experience with this yourself, Michael. Do you want? I mean, I know it may be, you know, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session. It may be difficult to talk about, but but um, t- t- tell us what happened to you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's almost a bit of a um, an office joke actually now. But as part of my uh, my new role with Ridley, uh, we we conduct a lot of on farm research, and that, and what that means is we go out to the farms where we um, feed certain diets and monitor the fish growth, that kind of thing. And in doing that, uh, we have to handle the barramundi. And I don't know if it was a retribution thing or not, but I worked with Barramundi for years and years and years now throughout my PhD and, and prior to that, never had any injuries. And the uh, first time I went onto a farm as, a, as an employee with Ridley, I um, picked up a Barramundi and got a spine right in my knuckle. These are dorsal spines, very, yeah? Yeah, they've got very, very um, firm, hard, large dorsal spines. And they're not, not usually an issue because they can tuck them away. Yeah. But for some... A, you know, unusual reason, this fish managed to flick its dorsal spine right into my knuckle and um, consequently I had two operations on it and uh, I've had, had occupational therapy on it since October last year and it's still in recovery. So Goodness me. It's been a long saga. <laughs> okay, so so that side of the barramundi I didn't know. So that could have been payback, Michael, <laughs> for all those, all those fish, yeah, I don't know. But hey... <laughs> I hope I do hope it gets better more seriously. Um, thanks for joining us this morning and, and giving us that kind of world tour of Barramundi, the the fish that we see, but we now know a hell of a lot more about. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks yeah, very much, right. Michael. No worries. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Anthony. Cheers. See ya. Right. Bye bye. The humble Barramundi. Now, Anth, with our volunteer experiences... Yes, you've, we've been collecting them. We have been collecting them, and it's water-based experiences that was asked about. So... OK. The Volunteer Coast Guard. Oh, brilliant. Yep. The Volunteer Coast Guard. And, and there are some others, I think, that people are starting to post, or maybe not yet. But they Not will. yet, but I've popped a Volunteer Coast Guard in the comments. Brilliant. So brilliant. feel free to, to log in and put an put a experience in the comments. It'd be great. Yeah, brilliant. And look, we're looking for other water-based volunteer. Water-based. Water-based volunteering. <laughs> Blown into the studio... It's Captain Windshift. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Very good, thank you. Good morning. You do look windswept. Yes. Well, let's have a look at the wind out there today. <laughs> well, is it still? When, when we walked, when Angelina and I came into the studio, it was blowing at something. I don't know. There's probably an analogy that's nautical there. Uh, oh, actually, there's there's a few expressions that sailors use. And I'll leave most of them out. <laughs> but, um, there is one that we like, which is blowing the dogs off chains. Okay. Well, it was doing that. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Doing but it was that. doing it in a very gusty way. It was not a consistent removal of dogs from chains. It was a pulsed removal. And yes. we want to talk about wind this morning, don't we? We do want to talk about wind this morning, yeah. Um, is, it, at, is it true that sailors know more about wind than anybody? Ooh, that's an interesting question. We'd like to think that we do. <laughs> and certainly when sailors are competing against really, really good sailors, you start talking about some of the Olympic gold medalists as being able to see the wind. No. But they can't, of course. No, but I love that. <laughs> I don't know. It, wouldn't it be nice to be able to actually look out there and see the wind moving? So how, how do you know they can't? 
Oh, well, good point. Maybe they can. They, maybe they perceive wind in a different way. So I have a friend who has this, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's a remarkable, um, I don't know what it is, but it's a condition, I suspect, where he, when he listens to music, he sees different colours. Right. It's, uh, a, it's a known something, mm. chromo something, something. Mm. I, maybe those sailors have that. You do build up. I've, I, it's been interesting. I've been teaching sailing school at our at our sailing club and it's amazing how much after sort of 40 years of being out on the water you take for granted mm. and one of the things I've been trying to impart to my students is the whole notion of being able to feel the wind as much as you can and your head with all its little tiny hairs especially around your cheekbones and your ears you've got these tiny little hairs and they're incredibly sensitive for picking wind gusts and mm. wind direction. You can actually feel which direction it is. And when you've got a lot of experience sailing, you actually automatically tilt your head around like a oh, really? like a little sparrow or something, <laughs> you know, and you're using that as a wind direction finder. And you do this automatically. And, and so when, when you teach that, do you actually teach, you say, now, when I move this way, then move it. Yeah, wow. I've, I've had them all standing, <laughs> to the hilarity of various children on the beach, I've had them all standing on the beach cocking their head to side to side now going, now, do you feel it? And everybody's going, oh, I think so, yes. <laughs> do, do you think that's a skill we lose in modern day life? I think so. Um, I think the more you're exposed to being outdoors and around the natural environment, the more you unconsciously pick up these sorts of things. I have no evidence for this, of course. But oh, of course, no. We're just, we're just talking. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but, but what we do have evidence for is the need for sailors to understand wind. I, yes. I, I don't know, but I suspect you can't get on a sailing boat without at least knowing the basics of wind. And is, is, it, is it, do you need the physics of wind? Like, what do you need to know? You do, you do, very much so. Because um, it's actually very, very complex. Um, Cut me off if I go on too much, but I'll give you a quick, brief primer of what sailors, as a beginner, need to know. Yeah, right. Um, so, okay, so we look at our marine forecast and we look at our synoptic charts. Yeah, that's the on, little... Can we do... So I'm going to do the bit where I translate. Please do. So synoptic chart is the one you look in the weather map with the real kind of swirly exactly. lines. Exactly. Okay. So anybody mm -hmm. who's been bushwalking and has looked at a topographic map which has got contour lines on it, a synoptic chart is exactly the same thing, but it's instead of measuring height, it's measuring uh, atmospheric pressure. Yep. So you have high pressure zones and low pressure zones and everybody's seen them on the nightly news. Yes. And, and so what happens is the wind in the absence of a non-rotating earth, the wind would go from the high pressure system to the low pressure system. Yeah, as you would. As you would. High pressure but low of course pressure. it doesn't. Sure. Because the earth's rotating. <laughs> the earth's rotating and so what actually happens is the the direction of the wind, if you look at your synoptic charts, the direction of the wind is actually following the contours of those circles. And so in a high-pressure system in the southern hemisphere, the wind's following the high-pressure system around those circles in an anti-clockwise direction. Yeah. And in a low-pressure system, it's following it in a clockwise direction. That's in the southern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere and flip it for the northern hemisphere. Uh, wh why is it different? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this. Oh, come I don't on. Know. Don't you have to take a PhD yeah. in physics to do, you know, meteorology yeah. to be a... <laughs> I, just, I just remember that this is the way this it is. The is, it is and yeah. I've got enough information it's to worry about. something to do with the spinning of the Earth. It has got a lot to it do does. with the spinning of the Earth yeah. and any more detail than that is way yeah. beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> As atmospheric scientists, we make great something else's, don't yeah, we? exactly. Okay, so 
then you, you know that. So then you go, all right, if it's going this way and it's a high-pressure system, it means I need to do what? You Well, then what you have from that, um, you have a good idea of the force of the wind and the direction of the wind on a macro level. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, so like the size of the bay or, you know, or more, more, than that, more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you, you've got a good idea. You say, radio, it's going to be, like, for example, today, blowing uh, dogs, west off delete, chains. dogs off chains <laughs> yeah. uh, coming from the west and slowly going round to the south, southwest. Because it's a low pressure. And We've it's got going, a low pressure system and yeah. it's moving across the sky. Anti clockwise. No, clockwise. Clockwise. Yeah. Low pressure clockwise. Now, now, now tell me this thing about a westerly. Mm-hmm. Is it going to the west or from the west? Oh, uh, yes. When we talk about winds, it's where the wind is coming from. Right. Okay, so a northerly wind, the coming wind is coming north. out of the north. And yeah. a westerly is coming out, out of, of the, the west. west. Correct. Yeah. So that's why a westerly down to a southerly is a clockwise movement. Yeah, we call it a uh, it's backing. <laughs> of course, because we, we, we want because to make we a do, new yeah, word. Yeah, 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 yeah we yeah, just yeah. want to come up with a new word. And if it's going the other way, it's veering. And I don't know why they did that either. And, and do boaties, do you boaties all sit around and go, right, you know, and, and talk about this? Yeah, okay, so yeah. that's the macro thing. Yeah. So that's that's relatively straightforward. But you have all sorts of other effects. So, so prior to going out on the racetrack, you want to know what the wind's going to be doing on a micro level in that little area of, say, Port Phillip Bay yeah. that you're going out racing in. So when you say Port Phillip, do you mean like, or do you mean even smaller? So even smaller. Even Hobson's Bay off. Correct. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So you really start looking at local effects and there's lots of them. Um, what controls them? Oh, boy, there are lots of them. Um, what I'll do over the next few times I come yeah. in is pick a few of them. Okay. But today, um, let's just do one which is one of my favourites. You can't see the wind, but this happens. Um, So the wind blowing across the surface of Port Phillip Bay. Sure. The closer it gets to Port Phillip Bay, the more it's slowed down by friction. Of the earth or of of the the water. Um, And not only that, it's also bent by the rotation. So Even though the earth's rotating so slowly, the wind is bent. Bolting along, well, anyway. I suppose it is, yeah, but perceptibly <laughs> to us, you're right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so what happens is, uh, over the distance of a mast on a small dinghy, yeah. which let's say from zero meters to seven meters high, which is not that, no, it's no. not that much on a light wind day. Um, say where you've got a gradient wind, this is our wind blowing from high pressure to low pressure, that's yeah. what we call the gradient wind, uh-huh. of, say, a gradient wind of six knots. Which is not a really not strong, a strong wind. wind. What but would you from call that? the bottom of the... Well, what would we call yeah. that wind? A light wind. A light, a light wind. breeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so from the base of the mast at, say, zero metres, yeah. all the way up to the top of the mast, you're going to go from, roughly speaking, zero knots to seven knots. Goodness me. And that's a lot of difference over the distance of your mainsail. So you've got a sail that's that's having everywhere between seven and one knot. Yeah, not only that, just to add to the fun, the, um, the friction bends it. So you have a twisted wind that's blowing in a different oh, no. direction and a different strength Depending at the top of the mast compared time. to where you are down yeah. at... One and a half metres. Is off. that why? And I, I have just understood a thing. I hope is that why sails ah. are tr- angular triangles. No, that's another oh, thing. But no, 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 no. <laughs> but you, you're barking up the right tree. You're okay. barking up the right yeah, tree. Yeah, yeah. If you next time you look out at a sail yeah. that's well trimmed, 
in light air, if you look at it, the top of the sail will be pointing in a different direction yes. to the bottom of the sail. And that's what we call twist. And that's a well-trimmed sail. That's a well-trimmed sail. So that's, what you're trying to do is get is the twist that. to yeah. match this invisible twisted wind. You guys, seriously, I had no idea. You guys are you guys need PhDs in atmospheric science to do this. No, no, no. We just, just try and remember a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you just need little hairs on your chins. That like, we need little hairs on our chins, exactly. <laughs> and now tell me, I've got this thing that, that going back to the big picture, mm. I think there's more easterlies these days. Yeah. than there have been before and I attribute it to climate change. This is only because when I was a kid in summer, mm-hmm. I just the easterlies in summer just were not very... They f- they did, you got northerlies and then a, and then a, and then a, a change came through and you got southerlies and southwesterlies. And that You're was talking about Port Phillip Bay, Port Phillip Bay. Here, I take it, yeah. yeah. Um, correct. I mean, that's that's the prevailing behaviour. And now we get more easterlies, I feel. Mm, yeah, I reckon you might have a bit of confirmation bias going <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you might be right. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> We, we certainly have seen um, the high-pressure systems pushing down lower more often. Like coming through the tropics yeah, and down the north. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've certainly noticed that. This and they would bring easterlies in response yeah, to them. sometimes, yeah, yeah, depending on where they are. Um, okay. Oh, gosh, this has been so educational. Oh, and you're, you're gonna, we're going to – what's the next one? If that was, if that was sheer, was it? That yeah, was that fictional twist, sheer. Yeah. Okay, so then I think the next one, one of my favourites is um, the, in, especially in summertime, you get these wonderful things called sea breezes. Yeah, and off they're the ocean. completely and utterly um, local geographic effect as opposed to the gradient wind. And I bet is that to do with the heat of the water and the heat of the land? Spot on. Yeah, exactly. no, they're fun. They're yeah, really I bet fun. because you wouldn't you wouldn't see them on a map. Nope, nope. That's local effect only. Mm. Captain Windshift, you have enlightened us. Excellent. With your windiness this morning. I'm gonna we're gonna play a little bit of I think we're almost um due to the doctors are lining up out there. They're coming in and there's that music in the background. I would like to thank uh, Dr. Michael Cellini to talk talking Barra this morning. And of course you, Captain Windshift, and your windy explanations. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Anth. We've got lots more volunteer opportunities online. Awesome. So, so keep log putting in and them. Look. Yeah, look at them. We'll just build up a huge, big database of volunteer opportunities on water and off water. Just indicate which you've got there that you'd prefer. And uh, next week, I think John and Bron are back. Well, That's right. Excitement. Easter. It is Easter. Mm. So enjoy your eggs. Marine eggs. Marine eggs. Marine eggs. <laughs> <laughs> windy marine eggs. Perfect. And may your Easter be very windy. And same to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> See you all. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.